Hello, and welcome to From Russia with News, a weekly news podcast brought to you by the Moscow Times. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Millions of citizens of Russia are united by the Olympic dream. I view the Russians as a far greater challenge that we have. President Putin, uh, he just said it's not Russia. A unique country, not bad, not bad at all. My name is Jonathan Brown, and I'm an editor in our newsroom here in Moscow. This week on the program, Russia is trying to make Stalin great again. The results of a poll released this week show that the iron-fisted Soviet leader is more popular among Russians than ever before. Well, I think there are several reasons for this. And uh, I must say that for Russians, Stalin is also a dictator, a brutal one. Uh, But uh, for now, this uh, part of his image is going to the background. We'll speak to Denis Volkov from the Levada Center about why now. And later, Russia has a youth army and its ranks are swelling. But what exactly does the Kremlin want with nearly half a million children and teenagers steeped in military and patriotic sentiment? Essentially means that they're much more acclimated to the military from a young age. That might make them much more open to serving in the military or law enforcement agencies like we spoke about, perhaps much more loyal to the state. We'll be joined in the studio by Moscow Times reporter Evan Gershkovich, who's met some of its members and its critics. First up, according to a survey released this week by the independent Levada pollster, a record number of Russians approve of Joseph Stalin's role in the country's history. Stalin, наша гордость. Stalin, наше знамя. Stalin, нашей веры, трепетное пламя. Stalin, справедливый вождь большевиков. Stalin, свет и правда. Будущих веков. Песню памяти Сталина на стихи и музыку русского барда Александра Харчикова исполняет ленинградская пионерка Таня Контарева. That figure, 70% of respondents, is up from just 54% three years ago. Just 13% said they disliked, feared, or hated Stalin. These new figures come on the back of what some analysts have said is the Russian state's campaign of rehabilitating the image of the Soviet leader and the country's communist past. Joining us on the line is Denis Volkov from the Levada Center. Denis, thanks very much for taking the time to speak with us today. Uh, Thank you. For many Westerners, Stalin is remembered as a brutal dictator responsible for the deaths of millions of Russians. Why then are we seeing a resurgence of approval for him in Russia today? Well, I think there are several reasons for this. And uh, I I must say that for Russians, Stalin is also a dictator, a brutal one. Uh, But uh, for now, this uh, part of his image is going to the background. But I think that, well, uh, uh, there are several, several reasons for his growing popularity right now. I think... uh, uh, maybe the most important is that uh, we are in an economic crisis, that uh, the incomes of Russians are going down, so they feel uh, more problems. At the same time, we see the growing perception of corruption. And uh, uh, and so the majority of Russians are dissatisfied with the uh, situation and with the government as well. Um, and because of this, uh, they... Well, welcome Stalin's iron grip, because this, uh, this this is an impression. Another part of his image that he dealt with the well bureaucracy, with the 
corrupt leadership, that he was very firm with bureaucrats, and uh, that's what uh, people uh, welcome, what they want. And uh, for for them, that uh, it's uh, that Stalin was brutal, not uh, uh, towards the people, uh, but first of all towards the towards the people around him. That's what uh, uh, people would like uh, Putin to do, and what uh, it's what uh, they criticize uh, Putin for that he is not dealing with uh, corrupt uh, people around him. Which is ironic because I mean, there's been some analysis that suggests that uh, the Russian authorities themselves are are playing a role in rehabilitating the image of Stalin. We've seen several statues of, of him appearing across the the, the country, uh, including in Moscow. Can you talk a little bit about sort of the authorities' role in uh, in in uh, in bringing Stalin back, well, I think uh, I think that uh, their role is indirect. It's uh, uh, not that they want to rehabilitate Stalin, but it's uh, about their uh, other other policy. Uh, first of all, I think it's uh, a conflict with the West plays the role uh, because it's uh, well uh, we we see and we hear Putin remembering the Ribbentrop Molotov Act, for example, and uh, saying that it was a wise thing to do to maintain uh, Russia's role in the in the world, uh, just to preserve Russia and to delay the war. So uh, and it's it in the um, situation with the conflict with the West when we see these words appear because uh, uh, several years ago we couldn't imagine uh, Putin saying such things because it was uh, unimaginable for the Western partners, for the uh, uh, people in the Baltics. Now we somehow put this aside. Another, I think, um, source of this rehabilitation is the state-sponsored holiday of uh, the Victory Day. Uh, which is very important for Russians because it was a great war that where Russia suffered big losses, but who won the war? It's uh, Stalin who was uh, in the leadership, and uh, we also see that no criticism is allowed at the state level uh, of the war. Why there are so big losses? What mistakes the leadership uh, has done? So no criticism is uh, allowed at the uh, high level. Not not to compromise the. The victory day and uh, uh, the feeling of the victory day, because this is one of the sources of uh, state's legitimacy. That well, it's the state, the role of the state in the war, and the role of the state today of well, co-sponsoring this uh, this event and uh, remembering this uh, victory. Stalin's great grandson uh, Yakov Tsugashvili spoke out after the poll became public. He said that those that support the Soviet dictator are moral freaks. Uh, What kind of resistance are we seeing in Russian society to this trend more broadly? Is there any? Well, uh, if we are speaking about uh, people who uh, remember these uh, uh, Stalin's atrocities, uh, there are, of course, uh, well, civil society organizations. I think Memorial, International Memorial, it's a Russian uh, organization that keeps the memory of uh, repressions, who study the repression. So there is a big uh, uh, community of uh, very good and high quality 
quality historians who do this work, but uh, it's uh, not uh, not saying that it's not completely allowed. We can uh, see some uh, uh, historical uh, video, how's it, video programs, uh, TV programs about this, but uh, they are not a mainstream. Mainstream. So the state is uh, a rather keen on playing uh, the aggrandizement of Stalin as a um, leader who won the great uh, patriotic war and not uh, not criticizing uh, him uh, directly on TV, not uh, discussing the, the crimes in the war, the repressions that were not only against the leadership, but uh, against the big parts of uh, Soviet society, or against ordinary people. So uh, there are uh, people and specialists who uh, work with this and remember this and try to uh, look into this, uh, but uh, they're not on the mainstream media. So what kind of uh, trajectory is, is Russia on then? Or, or how does this play out? What, what are the natural consequences of a, of, of a society that is uh, seeking to rehabil- rehabilitate um, a leader who oversaw one of the darkest periods of, of Russia's history. The danger of not remembering the the source of uh, not remembering the history of your country it uh, it may result in uh, well maybe not exactly in um, uh, doing the same uh, things uh, things uh, over and over again, but uh, not understanding the own history, not to understanding how we got there, what the causes of the repressions were. How how many people suffered? It's uh, not understanding the, um, I would say, the darker side of the of the state uh, that is not uh, uh, checked by society, not checked by the uh, civic institutions. I think this is one of the big uh, well, dangers of this. the The problem is that without uh, remembering this uh, oppressions and uh, understanding uh, their sources, uh, they can uh, repeat itself in one way or another. Not maybe in the such a big scale than uh, in the first half of the 20th century when there was only the mass society emerging in uh, in the Soviet state. Of course, the uh, situation is uh, uh, not that bad. I mean, it's, uh, people are more educated, more independent from the state now, but uh, not remembering the past, it uh, may result in uh, repeating the mistakes over and over again. Denise, thanks very much for taking the time to speak with us today. Yeah, bye-bye. Since Vladimir Putin ordered its establishment in October 2015, some 416,000 children between 8 and 18 have joined Russia's new youth army. It even has its own anthem. Promotional materials paint the organization as part military training, part summer camp, part patriotic education. But analysts say this new army could have a very real impact on Russia's future and its political life. Joining us in the studio is Evan Gatchkovich, a Moscow Times reporter who recently met with Yun Armia members and recruiters. Evan, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me back, Jonathan. I think you're our first uh, three-time offender. Woo! (laughs) Do I get an award for that? A medal? (laughs) Maybe on the fifth appearance. A pat on the back. Something like that. 
So before we talk about why, Evan, can you just paint a portrait of this uh, group for us? What does it look like exactly? We've got nearly half a million kids across the country doing what? Across the country since the 90s, there have been these patriotic clubs that have developed in different towns. I mean, in in a big way, they've been a leftover from the Soviet Union where teachers, educators, uh, town officials want kids to be engaged and they have leaned on methods that they've known for forever since they were kids and so these there have been various clubs after school programs in schools these patriotic clubs where kids talk about history they learn about uh, russian history and they you know do various good works for a town they go out and they clean monuments they you know volunteer with veterans etc uh basically community service volunteer service so the youth army has consolidated all these clubs around the country and made them more robust in the sense that they've started creating centers in schools around the country, in youth centers around the country, and have organized instructors. And so these instructors are former officers from the military who volunteer in each town, or they're actually administration officials who have been sort of pushed into these roles. The town that I went to that's right outside of Moscow they meet at a youth center every day after school or three or four days a week after school when they can. And they have a guy who used to serve in the military who now works in the town administration and he gathers them and they sort of just talk. They talk about history. uh, They talk about wars mostly and they decide what they're going to do. So the day I was there, there uh, there was a kid who's really into film. So he, the instructor helped him organize Uh, a video where the kids would basically talk about different uh, conquests that Russia had in its history. This included first flight to space. This included a war they won in the 13th century. Um, And then they discussed, you know, what they would do that weekend. They wanted to go do some sports. So, you know, on the face of it, it really looks like just a bunch of kids and some volunteers getting together for community service and a bit of patriotic education. One of the members of the youth army that you spoke to is also able to disassemble and reassemble an AK-47 in, in 30 seconds. Is it, how, how militaristic is, is, is the organization? Right. So this is where the first view you get of it sort of diverges. And this is also separate from the youth army, has been sort of increasing over the years, has been around since the 90s, but in recent years has become more and more of a fad, Has have been these uh, military pa- patriotic games. There are these camps where kids gather and there's instructors and they basically drill them uh, like cadets. They, I mean, just imagine any Hollywood movie about the American military getting ready for war. This is what these kids go through. There's different physical exercises, boot camp essentially. Yeah. They go through physical exercises. They learn how to shoot. They learn how to take apart and put back together uh, weapons. And this is a big part of the youth army as much as the instructors and the kids that you speak to like to say that it's not. So they mostly put the focus on this quote unquote patriotic education, the volunteer services that they do, etc. But it because most of these instructors are former military, former officers, and because these games are such a big part of what these kids get ready for uh, week to week, month to month, they look forward to it, they're excited about it, they get awards. It really is a big part of the youth army, even though many of these kids say, you know, I, you know, I want to be an actor, I want to be a lawyer, I don't want to go to the military. From what I understand, they start sort of coming around to it. The town I went to has 62 kids in the youth army. 
about half of the boys want to be officers. And one of the kids I spoke to said, while he doesn't yet, you know, his friends have, you know, over the past year, they're coming around to it yet. So in, it was in 2015 that uh, Putin ordered that this uh, group be established. Let's talk about why. Big part of Putin's third term as president starting in 2012 uh, has been, you know, a big motif has been projection of Russia's military might around the world, but also internally a turn towards traditional values and patriotic values. Uh, Putin gave this famous speech in 2012 after the Bolotnaya protests when he he basically said Russians are missing these, uh, he called them, I guess you would translate in English, soulful clamps that keep r- the Russian people together. And this is our strength and this is our might, loving our, you know, our motherland. And and there's been this push, there's been this big drive across all s- educational spheres, entertainment spheres about pushing patriotic Russian values. So certain films won't be able to be shown. Uh, the defense ministry has put money towards showing more war films. And so the youth army has sort of come out of that context. It was an initiative by the defense ministry, by by the army. They wanted to have this consolidated uh, initiative for kids. And it fits into Putin's political agenda. He signs it and the thing is launched. You've also talked about, in in your piece, you talked about how this is an opportunity for the Kremlin to kind of win over uh, a youthful population that are otherwise, uh, or could otherwise be more attracted to some opposition figures who are a little bit more glitzy in in how they uh, attract young Russians. Right. So one of the bigger struggles or initiatives over the past couple of years since Alexei Navalny in March 2017, out of the blue, surprising the Kremlin gets you know thousands of teenagers out protesting uh, corruption, has been figuring out how to catch up with Russia's youth, realizing that they sort of missed this generation and have them come around. And while the youth army was founded before, it was founded in late 2015, it has been seen as a tool, a tool to basically, from a young age, from eight years old is when kids can start joining the youth army, basically having them become loyal to the state. And that is what they call patriotic education, getting people to serve in the army, seeing the army as a good thing, seeing the state as a good thing. The state started using it as a tool, let's put it that way, rather than having founded it to, you know, educate kids that will be loyal to them. There's also a sense that the state wants to breed a group of people who will want to work for the state too. And this is across all law enforcement agencies in the military. And finally, uh, an electorate that will vote for them. So not stopping kids from going out to protest, but also, you know, eventually voting for the state, seeing the state as a positive. So are we seeing any any pushback, any uh, dissent to the idea of a sort of a mass militarized youth? Little to none, if at all. Uh, I spoke to some critics, this representative from a union of, of soldiers' mothers, and she is aghast at what is happening. She f- thinks that the military should have no business. She called it a crime. She called it a crime. She says that it violates the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child. And she, this is a woman who does support the army, but basically thinks that from 18 on, you should go to the army. The army should have nothing to do with people before they are 18 years old. And sociologists I've spoke to who've been researching the movement for the past, it's been about four years this fall, have essentially seen no pushback whatsoever. Teachers in schools are asked by youth army representatives, city officials to push kids towards the organization and 
many teachers, the the sociologists who've been speaking with the teachers say they see it as something positive. They remember the the pioneers during the Soviet Union, the Komsomol. They see this with sort of nostalgia, and they think it's good for the kids. It's prestigious. They ha- they have something to do after school. They're not going to get into trouble. They get to put on a nice uniform. And the further out you go from cities, from Moscow, from St. Petersburg, from Yekaterinburg, some of the wealthier cities, these uh, law, law enforcement agencies and the military have been have become a social lift in a big way. The the more the economy has stagnated, the more uh, these jobs actually are attractive to people. And so the youth jobs in the military, jobs in the military, jobs in the police forces, those sorts of jobs. And so the youth army presents, or the way it's presented to kids and to parents is as a way to start, you know, fast track that the way into that sort of career. And they've actually presented incentives. There are now, this announcement came at the end of March, 20 universities around the country that will give you extra credits upon matriculation if you, in these patriotic military games, shoot better than the next person or run faster than the next person. And so it's another way to make it attractive to kids. You, If we think about the United States, where it's incredibly uh, important to get into college by having these extracurricular activities. The youth army has sort of taken that place in Russia, or is more and more taking that place. Youth army hopes to have uh, a million members by 2020. Apart from the numbers, what is the future of a group like this? How is it likely to impact on Russian society and its its political life more broadly? It seems to become being much more a uh, part of the fabric of Russian society more and more these the, these past months. There's been a flurry of news about different initiatives we spoke about just now, the universities taking credits for kids who've joined Unarmia. The guy who runs the branch in St. Petersburg just gave an interview yesterday. He says the Unarmia's plans to build these, uh, what they call Unarmia palaces around the country, which resemble pioneer palaces. They basically look like school, regular schools, but there'll be centers for the Unarmia to have their activities. And so it's basically becoming more ingrained, more established, more a regular part of any Russian children's upbringing. What that means for children essentially means that they're much more acclimated to the military from a young age. That might make them much, much more open to serving in the military or law enforcement agencies like we spoke about, perhaps much more loyal to the state. But also, uh, what one political analyst who I spoke with talked about, a big part of this is that the way the current administration functions or has been functioning for a while is by cultivating this besieged fortress mentality that Russia's under attack from all sides, from the West, but also from a fifth column inside. This could be your opposition politicians, any, you know, guy who's saying you should rebel against the state. And so through something so entrenched in Russian society, they might be able to continue breeding that sort of way of thinking. It's not so clear when you go visit one of these schools, of course, uh, one of these centers, they're basically just talking about history. They're going out and they're cleaning some monuments, but they also vary from town to town and it varies who's in charge. So if you have a former military officer who is working with kids four days a week after school and he's incredibly suspicious of the West and of a fifth column inside, it's very easy to see how kids eight, eight years old, nine years old, 10 years old, 11 years old, who are learning how to assemble and disassemble weapons may start picking up that way of thinking. Evan, thanks very much for uh, taking the time to speak with us and being back in the program. Thanks for having me back on, Jonathan. And to finish off, crowds in the stands of a Premier League football match in Russia last weekend looked genuinely impressed when a robot ambled onto the pitch for kickoff. The commentator said that Alyosha the robot was powered by AI. But he wasn't. It was a man in a $3,000 suit, literally parading as a robot. 
What's maybe even more embarrassing is that this wasn't the first time it had happened. In December last year, another robotic man tried to fool audiences on a set of a television's robotics forum, where he was dubbed the most modern robot who can already dance quite well. That's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in, and don't forget to rate the podcast on iTunes. It'll help other Russophiles find us. Head over to the Moscow Times website for more on Stalin's comeback, Yun Armia, and other oddities from Russia. I'm Jonathan Bryan. Our producer today was Pyotr Sauer, and thank you to CM Records Studios in Moscow for hosting the show. Join us next week on From Russia with News. (laughs) 